Good morning, church. Thank you, Pastor Charlie. Take your Bibles and turn with me, if you will, to 1 Samuel chapter 9. First Samuel chapter 9, as we continue our series through this text that, as Pastor Tim mentioned last week, uh, basically is establishing the foundation, the grounds for the, the reign of King David and all of that pertains to that. You no doubt have already noticed, I'm sure, that our election process is underway. Uh, in case you haven't given thought to who you might want to vote for president, in about 15 or 16 months from now, uh, people are more than happy to go ahead and start talking about that. And um, I don't know if that, you can tell that I'm really excited about that just in the tone of my voice. Um, and perhaps that reflects a little bit of cynicism because even in the, the world or the culture we live in, in the nation we live in, uh, we've, we've grown somewhat just dissatisfied perhaps as, as, a, as a whole. I'm not saying that you individually, I'm not speaking for any particular person, but because we, if you're like me, you have certain standards that you'd like to, to see fulfilled in a person who is going to lead a nation. Uh, and when you see the system in which we uh, look to try to determine who that person is of, of not being necessarily the most reliable, uh, when most people would recognize, when, I mean, when you look and see that there are people who haven't been alive for about 50 years still voting, you just sort of lose confidence sometimes uh, in the, the whole process. But that's what we've been given, and, and thankfully we've been given that. We have been blessed with that. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Uh, because God has been able to work through a lot of really, uh, you know, influential people down throughout the course of over two centuries of time. But that's how we determine who leads us. We could be like uh, those who just a few weeks ago in the United Kingdom was granted another king. Someone who by its own, the nature of its own system, uh, acknowledges that they are ordained by God to be the king over the United Kingdom and uh, that they are the head of the church, which again might explain a lot of things of what's happened in the church in the United Kingdom. Uh, but there is the system. Uh, there are those, while that particular person doesn't have a lot of power because they have somewhat restricted themselves, because of public opinion and outcries that would happen if they didn't. Uh, they, they are the king based on just being born to a certain family. And they're recognized with certain honors and privileges because of, of that. That's how they, you know, before democracy basically influenced a large portion of the world, that was how they determined who led them and who would make decrees, and, and who would execute justice. And there are a host of other ways in which we see in, in the world in which we live, how they determine their leaders. Uh, the leaders themselves basically determine who is gonna be the leader. Uh, they just take charge by force. And so there's a lot of different ways in which we have 
experienced indirectly or directly how leadership is determined in the world in which we live, in our lives. But I would find it very difficult, if you're like me, that any of us could really relate to what's going on in 1 Samuel right now. Now, as Pastor Tim mentioned last week, it almost looks as if it, this wasn't even God's plan. The way things were being worked out, the, with the way God had worked through his people to uh, bring them out of slavery into a promised land and has, through all of this, provided protection and provided them with all that they needed. And when they depended on him, he rewarded their faith with blessing. When they chose to disobey him, he would correct them through giving them the curses that he warned them about. But he was faithful to them. And he was providing for them everything that they needed in leadership, whether it be through the judges, whether it be through the prophet Samuel, whether it be through the priesthood. God had orchestrated and administrated the system in which he would be able to lead his people and lead them effectively. But thankfully, we have chapter 9. It keeps us from being in despair. Uh, and while uh, there are many other passages in Scripture that if we looked at it in and of itself and focused on just one part of it, we could be really depressed. But thankfully, we have the whole counsel of God. He hasn't just given us little bits just to depress ourselves about the world in which we live. He's given us his whole counsel so that we can have hope in his word, that we can have confidence in his purposes and in his plans for his glory. And that's what we find as the stone begins to sort of roll down the hill in 1 Samuel chapter 9. So let's begin reading there. Having been reminded through our prayer of confession scripture reading of what has taken place, God has warned his people, this is what's going to happen. If you want a king, if you want a, if you want a human king, this is what's going to take place. And there seems to be some just, here it is. Samuel uh, has been told by God what is about to happen, and we come to chapter 9, verse 1. To where we read now, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphiah, the son of a Benjamite, a mighty man of valor. He had a son whose name was Saul, a choice and handsome man, and there was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. From his shoulders up, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to his son Saul, Take now with you one of the servants and arise. Go search for the donkeys. He, Saul, passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha, but did not find them. Then they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then he passed through the land of the Benjamites, but they, but they did not find them. Now, at this portion, I just have to throw in a bit of irony here because as we were reading from 1 Samuel chapter 8, one of the things that God warned his people about, if 
if a king was to be established over them, that one of the things he would take would be their donkeys. Well, apparently here's the reason why. It's because they lose them and can't find them. So they're going to take, okay, so that was just a little bit of humor there. Should have just left that alone. It may hit you on the way home. I'm not sure. So here we have a narrative of this man who is of noble regard. He comes from a very, very fine family of the tribe of Benjamin. A noble man, a man of, of, of high esteem, of great influence, a man of wealth. He has donkeys, he has servants. Now, obviously, it was a good looking family. As a matter of fact, Saul is described here as being more handsome than anyone else in the land of Israel. And why would that matter? Well, it shouldn't, but it does, right? We all have an affixation on that which is appealing to the eye. Now, we might have different degrees of where we you know, will settle for, but we all have certain levels. And, and so this is the way he's being described. He's a noble person. He's an influential person. He's a handsome person. He's a wealthy person. Sounds like he's got the beginnings of a great political career. He was of great stature. Short people? <laughs> I'm not sure what that says, but, uh, you know, Pastor Charlie, uh, that's not, not, to, not that you would have anything to say about that. But why does that matter? Because we're humans. We're out for an appearance. We like people that stand above the crowd, especially if we're basketball fans. We're looking for someone that we can figuratively and literally look up to. And so we're introduced to this man, Saul, who while he's, again, just a simple narrative, which the narrative itself doesn't lend itself to any credibility to Saul. He's out looking for his father's farm animals, and he can't find them. But he looks good. He's got money. He carries influence because of the family that he belongs to. But they couldn't find the donkeys. So when they came, verse 5, to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us return, or else my father will cease to be concerned about the donkeys and become anxious for us. And I'm perplexed. I'm not sure exactly how to take that. If Saul really looks to his father as being someone so concerned that, man, my, my, my son has been out here for days. He hasn't come back. I'm concerned about him. Or if Saul is really concerned about Saul. I'm not sure. And he said to him, Behold, now there is a man of God in this city, and the man is held in honor, and all that he says surely comes true. Now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us about our journey on which we have set out. Then Saul said to his servant, But behold, if we go, what shall we bring the man? For the, for the bread is gone from our sack, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? Again, the servant comes through again. Not only does he point him to the fact that, well, there's somebody over here who may know exactly what's going on, 
But he says, you know what? The fact that you don't have any bread, you don't have anything to give him. The servant said, behold, I have in my hand a fourth of a shekel of silver. I will give it to the man of God and he will tell us our way. Now verse 9 gives us some, some commentary here. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he used to say, come and let us go to the seer. For he is called a prophet now who was formerly called a seer. In other words, what the word of the person who brought the word of God, the prophet, had been reduced to somebody who could just tell the future. Someone who could just see what was going on. Somebody who had wisdom. But nevertheless, they recognized the prophet as being such. They went knowing that the prophet should be able to show them what was going on. And so that Saul said to his servant, well said, let, come, let us go. So they went to the, to the city where the man of God was. Now, as we mentioned earlier, uh, chapter 8 leaves us in shambles, wondering what in the world is going on. Uh, what's going to happen with God's people? They, they're, they're rebelling not only against Samuel, but as God made it really clear to Samuel, they're not really rejecting Samuel, they're rejecting God. They're wanting a king like the other nations have. But what I would like for us to consider today in 1 Samuel chapter 9 is the Lord's plan for a king. The Lord's plan for a king. Not the, not the Lord's concession to give them a king. Not the Lord's reluctant answer of prayer for a king. But for the Lord's plan a king and this plan doesn't start in first samuel chapter 9 this plan didn't start in first samuel chapter 1 this plan started as leaps what we are given in the very first book of the bible in genesis chapter 35 when god was speaking to jacob changing his name from jacob to israel he said, I'm God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. And get this. And kings shall come from your own body. In other words, Jacob or Israel, you will have descendants that will become kings. So this whole idea of kingship wasn't a novel idea in 1 Samuel chapter 9. It was something that God had promised one of the patriarchs, Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, that from his lineage there would be kings. It doesn't stop there. About 500 years or so earlier than 1 Samuel chapter 9, God, speaking through Moses, said, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall possess it and dwell in it, and then say, this is, this is interesting, right? I will set a king over me. Again, 500 years before 1 Samuel chapter 8, God tells Moses that the people 
When they go into the land to possess, they're going to say, we're going to set a king over us. And notice what God says, like all the nations that are around me. And God says, you may indeed set a king over you. Whom the Lord your God will choose. <laughs> so if we were to read in folly, 1 Samuel chapter 8, and to come to the conclusion, which we did not, and Tim certainly didn't suggest this, so I'm, I'm not saying that he said, but if we come to the conclusion in folly to say, well, this just doesn't seem like God's in control of anything. Oh, God is very much in control of everything. God not only knew what they would do, God ordained what they would do. This is God's plan for a king. Now that may cause us to scratch our heads because, wait, whoa, 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 wait a minute. So you're meaning that God is creating some chaos here? That you mean God is creating something that's causing things to, no, what God is doing is working sovereignly in a world that's cursed by sin. But he's in absolute control and this is where we gain confidence that even when we, like the nation of Israel, choose things that are not the best for us. When we do things that bring consequences into our lives and even into the lives of others, God never, ever loses control. God is always sovereign over everything. And our passage relating this meeting of Samuel with Saul is orchestrated by God. It may seem like just a mere story time at night narrative that, you know what, there was this young man one time and he went out to find his father's donkeys and they never found them. And hopefully, the, you know, our kids will be asleep by the time we get to the end of that because, well, what's the point of that story? But it's more than that. There are details that seemingly don't fit the sovereignty of God, but in essence, they are describing intact the sovereignty of God. But I thought this was Israel asking for a, a king. I thought this was Israel wanting to be like the other nations. Yeah. The Expositor's Bible has a note which I think is very interesting. I'll read it to you. Again, talking about these two people, Samuel and Saul, coming together. That these two should meet and that the older of them should have the opportunity of instructing and influencing the younger was of greatest consequence for the future welfare of the nation. And the meeting is brought about in that a casual way that at first sight seems to indicate that all things happen without plan or purpose. Yet we find on more careful examination that every event has been planned to fit into every other as carefully as the pieces of a dissected map or the fragments of a fine mosaic. But all the actors in the drama, not one ever feels that his freedom is in any way interfered with. All of them are at perfect liberty to follow the course that commands itself to their own minds. 
So while it seems like these are just happenstance circumstances, people are desiring to be like the other nations to get a king. This man who has wealth and influence and is good looking sends his son out to go find lost donkeys. It's actually working just as God designed it to do as we continue reading in verse 11. As they, this is Saul and his servant, went up the slope to the city, they found a young woman going out to draw water and said to them, is the seer here? Again, why bring in somebody who's, she's not going to be the king. She's not even going to get a vote. But here she's part of this narrative which shows God intricately working. They asked the seer here, and they answered him and said, He is. See, he is ahead of you. Hurry now, for he has come into the city today, for the people have a sacrifice on the high place today. As soon as you enter into the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he comes, because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterwards, those who are invited will eat. Now, therefore, go up for you. will find him at once. So they went up to the city. They came into the city. Behold, Samuel was coming out toward them to go up to the high place. Now, a day before Saul's coming, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel, saying, About this time tomorrow... I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel and he will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines for I have regarded my people because their cry has come to me. This meeting of two people who did not know each other personally before this moment brought together by different circumstances but yet there is a great purpose because it is in the fulfillment of God's plan. But again, it makes you wonder, now who's in control? Is it, is it these people just happening to do what they wanted to do? Is it just because they just happened to lose their donkeys? Is it, is it because this uh, servant just happened to see Samuel go by the wayside and knew what direction he was going so that she could provide direction? And again, this is a very simple question, but it applies to a lot of complex things throughout Scripture where we try to figure out what, what's going on. Is, is, it, is it God in control? Is, is man responsible for what he does? And, and we say yes. You may recall not too long ago, back before the study of Genesis and Exodus that Pastor Tim was taking us through in the quip hour, we looked through the book of Knowing God. J.I. Packer, who wrote that book, says something very interesting. The things that God is pleased to keep to himself have no bearing on man's duty. The thing that God chooses to keep for himself, the, the, the answers that we will never come to in this life and perhaps maybe ever. Why he does the things that he does, how he does it. The things that he chooses not to reveal, the secret things of God, they have no bearing on our duty. They have no bearing on us being responsible for what we do. They have no bearing on whether we are should or should not carry something out or not. But they work hand in hand. The way Spurgeon put it was, 
uh, when he tries to reconcile the sovereignty of God and his plan and his purposes and the responsibility of man and his choices, he says, I don't try to reconcile friends. They may seem opposites, but they're actually friends. They, they go hand in hand. So when we look at what's happening here, is it God choosing the king or is it the people choosing a king? Is it just happening because of a mere chance or is it God actually ordaining these things? But we see quite clearly, I believe that it is God ordaining these things. And particularly if we look at verses 16 and 17 more closely. Again, Lord speaking to Samuel says what? About this time tomorrow? What? I'm sending somebody. I will send you a man. Circumstances were not incidental. Taking Saul to the area where Samuel was going to be was part of God's plan. Saul's servant was instrumental. The young woman was involved. But it was God who said, I will sin. So God is actively engaged here by sending him. But notice what he also says in verse 16. He says, you shall anoint him. Now, that may seem like, well, well Samuel's the one. Well, no, God's the one who says what's going to happen. Not only am I going to send him to you, but I'm, you're going to anoint him. And then in, later on in verse 6, it says, speaking of Saul, he will save my people from the Philistines. He shall be a restraint, verse 17, on my people. This is God telling Samuel what is going to happen. How can he do that if he's not sovereign? How can he do that if he had not already ordained it and planned it? It wasn't as if he had a crystal ball. and said, you know what, Samuel, guess what? Uh, the fortune cookie said today after I had my meal said that you're going to meet a stranger and he's going to be the king. No. God, again, has a plan for a king. And I love, as a sinner, the reason why we have this disclosure of God's purpose and plan. For he says in verse 17, I'm sorry, verse 18, then Paul, I'm sorry, I messed up here. Verse 16, he will deliver my people from the land of the hand of the Philistines, for I have regarded my people. Because their cry has come to me. That probably shocks us when we read that for what it says. <laughs> Are you serious, God? Here you've been so faithful to lead these people and to provide these, for these people and to protect these people. And their response to you is give us a king like they've got over there. And your response is that you hear their cry? Your observation is they're being 
plummeted by the Philistines? Where's your judgment? Where is your almighty hand to wipe these people out? They have openly rejected you. And you hear their cry? Exactly. Why should we be guests at the table? Why should we have heard the cry inviting us to join the feast? Why would God extend his grace to people who despise him and reject him? Again, it reminds us of Exodus chapter 2. But here in 1 Samuel chapter 8, it's different from Exodus chapter 2. In Exodus chapter 2, you just had a group of people that had been enslaved for 400 years. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, you've got a people that has been given the blessings of God and shown and given his law, has seen his glory, and they still reject him. God deals with his people graciously. He deals with their rejection by giving them in one form what they ask for, but giving it in a way that he chooses. He resigns his position as their spiritual divine leader and king and gives them a human one. But this is not the last time we see this picture in Scripture. In Philippians chapter 2, we're told that there was Jesus who being in the form of God He didn't consider it to be robbery, to be equal. He didn't see being God as something far-fetched because he is God. But he humbled himself. Took the form of a servant. Was born into this world like a man. Became a servant became obedient as a servant, even unto death, even the death on a cross. Why did he do that? Because the Father saw his people, saw their need, and knew that they needed someone to make atonement for their sin, that they would not be able to do it on their own. So Christ died on a cross, shedding his blood that we remembered even today so that we could be forgiven. 
so that our sins could be atoned for, so that our sinfulness could be laid on his perfectly obedient, righteous shoulders to bear our penalty. He humbled himself to death so that we might have life. This was the king of heaven coming to earth as a man so that in his obedience, the father might give him a name. It's above every name. And that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In Philippians chapter 2, we're told of a heavenly king becoming a human king to become our eternal king. This is the Lord's plan for a king. They say, well, how in the world does that fit with Samuel chapter 9? This is God demonstrating that he is sovereign over his plan for a king. This isn't the people taking charge. This isn't the people coming up with a new type of government. This isn't the people, you know, over or strong-arming God. This is God demonstrating, oh, you're going to get a king, but it's going to be a king that I choose. And Samuel, you're going to meet this king. It's going to, it's our circumstances are going to bring you together because I've ordained them. And he's going to save his people. He's going, to, he's going to actually protect them. He's going to restrain them. He's going to give them laws. He's going to give them uh, ways in which they have to limit their behavior. But even Saul was perplexed as we continue our reading. Verse 18. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Please tell me where the seer's house is. Samuel said, or Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today. And in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys, which were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's household? Can you imagine meeting someone? You're just going to try to figure out where your donkeys are at. And he unloads on you. Hey, don't worry about your donkeys. I'm getting ready to take you to a feast and you're going to be at the head of the table. So Saul replied in verse 21, am I not a Benjamite? Of the smallest of the tribes of Israel and my family, the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin. Why then do you speak to me in this way? And you sort of feel sorry for the guy. I mean, he wasn't expecting any of this. He didn't even register to vote. And here now he's going to be sitting at the head of the table. Then Samuel took Saul and his servant and brought them into the hall, gave them place at the head of those who were invited, who were about 30 men. Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion that gave you concerning which I said to you, set it aside. Now again, this portion of the feast would have been dedicated to the priest himself. 
that Samuel is making a gesture showing Saul that, hey, you're getting the choice piece of meat that I would get. You're getting it to show the honor that you are about to receive. Then the cook took up the leg, which the son, which was on it, and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, here is what has been reserved. Set it before you and eat because it has been kept for you until the appointed time. Since I said that I've invited the people, so, so Saul ate with Samuel that day. When they came down from the high place into the city, Samuel spoke with Saul on the roof, and they arose early at daybreak. Samuel called to Saul on the roof, saying, Get up, that I may send you away. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the edge of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Say to the servant that he might go ahead of us and pass on, but you remain standing now, that I may proclaim the word of God to you. I love the way in which this whole circumstance, all these, the series of events here led to what would ultimately be the proclamation of God's word. Lord willing, we'll be looking into that in future sermons. But this is kind of full circle. This started with the word that the Lord gave to Samuel saying, tomorrow you're going to meet somebody that's going to become king. You're going to anoint him. He's going to save his people. He's going to restrain his people. He meets. Now Samuel and Saul have a moment in which now Samuel is preparing to provide the word of God to Saul. But this was all the Lord's plan. This was not just one of the situations where God said, hey, you know what? I see the events of happening in a certain way. I can really capitalize on this. You know what? I think I'm just going to intervene here. I'm just going to take credit for all of this, this the things that just happened to be. Well, I've really been troubled over the last few moments trying to figure out what am I going to do with this people of Israel who are now demanding a king and they're refusing Saul, they're refusing our Samuel, and they're refusing me. What in the world am I to do? No. This is God, his plan for a king. And in just for a few moments, I would like to, if I could, without doing damage to the text of Scripture, draw out some things that hopefully will encourage us as, as we look at the things that were written aforetime and as we understand that they were written for our instruction and that we understand that through endurance and through the encouragements of the Scriptures, we may have hope. What can we gain from this? Because after all, we didn't live 2,500 years ago. We didn't live when this was taking place. We're not Israel. We're, we don't have a king ruling over us. So what can we gain from this? In understanding that, that God is sovereign, that God had a plan for a king. What does that understanding of God's sovereignty do for us? How does that encourage us? Well, I think there's three ways in which that can encourage us. Because after all, even though we're not Israel in Saul's day, we're still prone to do what? Look for a king of our own? We're still looking for someone who can answer our prayers differently than God does? Uh, we're still looking for security in things that God doesn't provide seemingly? 
We still look for things that we can have confidence in and we can enjoy that God doesn't give. We have things that God just doesn't seem to answer. Our we pray about it. We know God can fix it. We know God can do this. We know God can do that. But he just doesn't seem to. So you know what? If I could find another way of getting that, if I could find that right spiritual vending machine, if I get that right spiritual credit card that I could just kind of put it on, I wouldn't need God. Because we are prone to do that even as God's people today. Let's find some encouragement in the fact that God is still sovereign. First of all, God ordains every circumstance that leads us to ultimate glory. God ordains every circumstance that leads us to the ultimate goal of glory. You see, God took some just what would be a normal narrative in chapter 9 of 1 Samuel, but it wasn't just happenstance. It was actually working towards something. And how do I know that our lives and how do I know that every circumstance leads to that? It's because of what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8. After he tells us that, you know what, we don't even know what to pray for. So thankfully, we've got the Holy Spirit who makes intercession for us. Right after he says that, he tells us what? We know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Just as much as God has a purpose and a plan to ordain Saul, in all the circumstances that we read about it, we're working together for that. We can trust that every circumstance in our lives are working together for our good in God's glory. The people that happen to cross our paths are ordained by God to do so. Whether it be a servant, whether it be a, a young woman telling us that the, 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 the prophet just went that way, or whether it be someone named Jim Newcomer. You may not know Jim Newcomer, but I do. Amy does. You know why? Because he was the pastor at Twin City where I had been youth pastor. And the only reason why I knew Jim Newcomer is because after I, just, I, I didn't even want to, when the opening for pastor was there, I was still down in Denton. I was like, you know what? I feel like I'm where I'm supposed to be. I met Jim Newcomer, the new pastor of Twin City. Jim Newcomer took me to a conference where I heard someone speak about the doctrines of grace. When I heard about the doctrines of grace, I made some new friends in Winston-Salem. When I made some new friends in Winston-Salem, one of them was Mark Reed at, at Rosemont Baptist Church. When I became a friend of Rosemont Baptist Church and I became part of that ministry, I understood a little bit more about other individuals who were in this area, pastoring churches of, of Reformed thought and theology. To the point where, as Cornerstone Baptist Church was coming along into a, a time of rediscovery of what God had in design for it to be, guess what? I was sort of going along the same path. And so when Amy and I came here over 10 years ago, we decided to join the church here because we are of like faith, something that would have never happened 20 years ago if I had never met Jim Newcomer. Now you may say, well, I wish you had never met Jim Newcomer. We would have never met you. I wouldn't be waiting for another 15 minutes to get to lunch, even though it's just right across the hall. But all of those circumstances, and that is just a very high-level explanation of that. But I could take you into different little veins and arteries of my life that have been affected by one relationship. I haven't even talked to Jim Newcomer in probably 15 years or more. But through the relationship that started way back then, 
of how it has taken my life to this point. Now, I trust that this is on the pathway to ultimate glory of God because of what he's done in my life, what he has opened my eyes to help me understand things that I did not understand before. People that I have been able to minister to and be able to minister from. It's not by chance. Even when the person that we got irritated with on the way to church this morning, we were going just fine, going 50 in a 45 mile an hour zone. Yes, I did confess my sin just now. And then all of a sudden, somebody decides that they want to pull out and and drive five miles under the speed limit. I guess that was God's way of averaging things out. But initially, I'm like, why is this person in my way? And then I had to remember, Mark, remember what you're preaching about today. For whatever reason, I may never know what I missed out on. I may never know what could have happened if I was further down the road. You know, we get all these types of things. But again, I don't have answers to that. And as I mentioned earlier, J.I. Packer mentioned, just because I don't have the answers doesn't relinquish my duty at all to do what God has called me to do. But what about sin? Even the consequences of our sinful desires and actions can appear to just delay our ultimate glory. Do we believe that? Are we encouraged by the fact that because God is sovereign, because he is sovereign king over our lives, that everything is ordained by God and that leads us to ultimate goal of glory? Here's another thing that should encourage us about God's sovereignty. When we are not as we ought to be, and when is that ever to happen? When we are not as we ought to be, God is still faithful to provide as he promised. Even when we're not mature like we should be, God is faithful because he has promised. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, Paul speaks about sometimes the circumstances can keep us from being where we want to be. And he says, for the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am streak, when I am weak, then I am strong. So even when the circumstances seem to derail our lives, God is faithful. Paul goes on to say in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, so we do not lose heart, though the outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Even dealing with the cursed world in which we live in, God is faithful as he's renewing us, making us more mature. Even though we're not mature, he's making us more mature through those circumstances. Even when it comes to the conformity to Christ, James chapter 1 tells us that the trying of our faith works patience, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Do we look at God's sovereignty as is his working through the trials and, and, the, and the pain that we go through, do we look at that as good? Are we encouraged by that? Because God is not wanting us to lack in anything. And so therefore, our faith is tried. Oftentimes our faith, that could be almost rewritten in my version to say, your faith is proven to be not enough. 
thankfully, as the song says, he will hold me fast. Right? And then even into the correction. As I mentioned a few weeks ago from Hebrews chapter 12, for a moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But latter, it reveals, or it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So even when we are not what we should be, even though we're not what we ought to be, God is faithful working through the circumstances. God is faithful bringing us into conformity of Christ. God is faithful to correct us. And then last, we should be encouraged by God's sovereignty. All is not lost when the first attempt is not the best. All is not lost when the first attempt is not the best. You see, Saul wasn't the ultimate picture of a king. We know the rest of the story. We know Saul's life showed him to be a very bad king. Did God use him? Absolutely. Were there people of Israel from time to time protected? Sure. But God chose Saul first, not because he was the best, or that he would be the most blessed, or the most effective. And sometimes there's things that come into our life in God's sovereign plan. We don't always get the best the first time we try something or the first time we go at it or the first commitment that we make. Sometimes we quit, right? The first of the year comes around and after Tim puts that new Bible reading plan out and we're going to read it, you know, we're going to read the scriptures every day even if it takes us an hour and a half to get through that, you know, four you know, passages going through the book of, you know, Isaiah, and, and we have really great intentions, and, and, and we feel like you know, we need to feed off God's word on a regular basis, and this is a great way to do it. And after three days, you're two days behind. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm just not a reader. I, I'm just not a devotion person, so I'm just going to kind of give it up. Aren't you glad the first time when it's not the best, is not, everything's not lost? We can be like Paul, first, or Philippians chapter 3, not that I have already attained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider what I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Every moment is a moment of forgetting what's back there and remembering what's up there and straining to get to that through Christ. See, the nation of Israel, first king wasn't great. But in God's plan, they didn't say, you know what? God, we give up. You proved it. You proved yourself right. You said we shouldn't have a human king, so therefore we don't want one anymore. Because what happened? God gave them a man who was after God's own heart. 
who would be the father of one who would ultimately be the one who brings about the goal for the prize of the upward calling God. That's Jesus Christ. So may we pray confidently as the Lord instructed us, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because each day is a day that the Lord has made, so let us rejoice and be glad in it. The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. He brought me out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He is our king today. We have a good and gracious king. We have a king who, as the City of Light group has written a song, the ancient of days, in which they say, though the nations rage, kingdoms rise and fall, there is still one king reigning over all. So I will not fear, for this truth remains, that my God is the ancient of days. Though I may not see what the future brings, I will watch and wait for the Savior King. Then my joy complete, standing face to face in the presence of the Ancient of Days. None above him, none before him, all of time in his hands. For his throne it shall remain and ever stand. All the power, all the glory, I will trust in his name. For my God is the ancient of days. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing yourself as a sovereign God. We thank you, Lord, that to the nation of Israel, even when it seemed that they were getting exactly what they wanted, it was all a part of your plan. Even when it seemed that their rejection of you would bring them swift destruction. It was all a part of your plan to not only give them a king, but to give them a king, and for all of us who trust in him, a king whose reign will never end. Help us, Lord, to trust in that sovereign work. Help us, Lord, to see how you are sovereignly working in our lives even today. Help us to be encouraged. Help us to know that every situation, every circumstance has been ordained by you to bring us the ultimate goal, your glory. I pray, Lord, that you help us to be encouraged knowing that even though uh, we fall and even though we are not what we ought to be, you're faithful and you are going to bring about what you are working in us, that is, making us more like Christ. And help us, Lord, to be encouraged in your sovereign work and in believing that even though, as we would have it, things don't work out in order, we don't always get what is best for us first in our eyes. Help us, Lord, to understand that in your sovereign hand, it is all working out together for good. Encourage us, Lord, in your word, and help us now as we continue to fellowship and worship around your word. And we ask this in Christ's name.